All right, take your Bibles and turn with uh, us to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Uh, somebody say, uh-oh. <laughs> uh-oh. The book of Revelation. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, you know what? I've said that a million times. Uh-oh. The book of Revelation. I, we were talking in Sunday school, I believe it was, and I've mentioned this before, that one of the greatest theologians, the, known as the, one of the, the, the most well-known theologian of the Reformation was John Calvin. And John Calvin, he, just, he didn't even attempt to write a commentary on the book of Revelation. He just was afraid that he would make too many mistakes. And so he just uh, didn't do that. But um, we're going to take a look at, and you, when you look at the title of the sermon, it says, One Step Closer. Now, I realize we're one step closer to death, every one of us, right? We're one step closer to the second coming of Christ, right? We're one step closer to a lot of things. But I put that title in there so that you and I could say that we can become one step closer to understanding the book of Revelation. I'm convinced there's only two responses whenever you read the book of Revelation. You're either going to be encouraged or you're going to be discouraged. You're either going to look at the book of Revelation and say, wow, this is fantastic. God is in control and God is going to win in the end. And along the way, he gives us many, many indications of what a blessing this will be for us. Or you're going to look at the book of Revelation and you're going to be discouraged and you're going to say, this is horrible. This book scares me to death. I can't imagine this stuff happening. Well, it's hard to understand. The, the events are clearly outlined for us, but it's hard to understand because they're couched in a lot of symbolism. So let's begin with the book of Revelation. I'll give you a quick overview and then uh, we'll... Uh, we won't drop this, but we'll, we'll try to help you out uh, next week as well. The revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants. Now, revelation is something that has previously been concealed but is now revealed. That's the quickest and best definition I can give you. And so the revelation is of Jesus Christ, and it ultimately means two things. Number one, it means that Jesus is revealing to us events that are going to happen in the future, and in the process, he reveals himself in a pretty magnificent way. But the Bible says that he has given us these words so that we will understand what will shortly take place. He sent and sanctified and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. He's faithfully going to write this down for us, which he did. And then look at verse 3. This is your personal blessing. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. 
Now, don't you want to be blessed? All right. So we need to read this book. We need to hear the words, and we need to keep them. And the Bible says we will be blessed. Now, Jesus has revealed what has up to this point been concealed. Lots of prophecies in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but you don't have prophecy put together like you do in the book of Revelation. Do you want to know about the second coming of Christ? Clearly in here. Do you want to know about the millennial reign of Christ? Clearly in here. Do you want to know about the great white throne judgment? Clearly in here. Do you want to know about the new heaven and the new earth? Clearly in here. Do you want to know about the tribulation period? Clearly in here. So this is a great book for us. It's like God giving us the heads up for the future. It's kind of like a dam filling up with water that hasn't broken yet. But we see it filling up. We see it filling up. And as soon as it gets to the top and it starts to overflow, the dam will break. And one of these days, it is going to break. And it just kind of reminds me of the Johnstown flood. I think it still holds the record of being the worst flood in American history, just up the road from us. But the Johnstown flood, you remember when it rained and rained and rained and rained, and they finally realized that there was a real serious problem. They tried to shore up the dam. They did everything they could to try to shore up the dam, adding dirt, uh, uh, repairing spots, and doing everything like that. But you know what? Um, they, couldn't, they couldn't change the inevitable. And I'm saying that to you right off the bat because we can't change the inevitable. We can't change all the bad stuff that's going to happen in the book of Revelation. And we can't change all the good stuff that's going to happen in the book of Revelation. So if you're a bad guy and you don't want the good stuff, too bad. I put it that way because my response to the book of Revelation is an encouraged one, encouraging one rather than a discouraging one. And you may say, well, you think we can hold it off a little bit? Sometimes God says we can, sometimes He says we can't. But God has written this all out for us to give us a heads up on the future. And so He says in verses 1 through 3, He says, I'm sharing with things that are shortly going to take place. They are written for the time is near. Now, I know what you're thinking when you read this. This was not written initially to you and me years out. This was written for the early church. This was written for the people in the time of the New Testament by the Apostle John. And it's important for you to understand why it says here that uh, this uh, is written because these things are shortly going to take place. The time is near. Now, Trace this just for a minute before we go any further. After he writes that, in chapter 1, verse 19, we have one of the biggest indicators of what's going to happen in the rest of the book. Because he says to John in verse 19 of the same chapter, write the things which you have seen and the things which are. Have seen is past. The things which are are present. And the things which will take place our future. So you have to understand, you've got to put all this together so you understand where this shortly take place and the time is near 
where it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. For the early church, they started reading it right away. And they looked at this. Now, I want to give you a third, just a third time signature. You already looked at the ones in verses 1 and 3. You looked at the one in verse 19, which is, I think is a very good outline of the book. But go to chapter 4. Go to chapter 4. In chapter 4, the Bible says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take, to, must take place after this. So if I were to give you the first big time signature for the future, it would start in chapter 4, verse 1. The things shortly to take place begin in chapter 1 and go through chapters 2 and 3 and then include the future. But the real big change in time begins at chapter 4. Now, I don't know if you know the book of Revelation very well. I come from a premillennial perspective. I come from a, a pre-rapture, uh, pre, uh, pre-trib rapture. I, that's the perspective I come. But, but that doesn't mean that other perspectives don't fit into the book as well. Most people would look at chapter 4 and say, wow, this is, this is a, a, a scene in heaven. And right after that, we have the great tribulation period. But I want, you to, I want you to notice this time signature, and the reason why is because if you and I do not understand the original audience that John wrote to, they looked at it totally different. They know nothing about world conditions today. They couldn't even dream of what the world would look like today. Have no idea of the nations that vie for power today. But they grew up, and they were living in the time of the Roman Empire. And you have to understand, that was their context. Now, they didn't take this book and said, well, a lot of these events are going to happen down in the future, a long time down in the future, so I'm not going to bother with them. We'll just take the book of Revelation and shelve it. And then when we start to see some things happen, we'll take it down and we'll try to, we'll try to look at it in greater detail. They didn't do that. They interpreted everything in the context of their day and the near future. So they had to have been wondering what all this had to do with the Roman Empire. Because I'll be very honest with you, the Roman Empire forms a great illustration of what's going to happen in the final world empire. A great illustration of that. So here we are, hundreds of years later. There's no Roman Empire anymore, but we are interpreting this in light of our day and age in which we live. And, and, and Jesus says to us, blessed are those who read, blessed are those who hear, blessed are those who keep. Now, that means we've got to look at the book of Revelation and see how it is structured. It's very important that we do that. Now, think about this for a minute. If I build a house, I put the foundation in, I put the structure of the wood and everything in, then I put the wiring and the plumbing, and I put the plaster board on and plaster the house and finish it off. Now, if I'm going to go in there and I'm going to fiddle around, 
I got to want to know what's behind the plaster. I want to know what the structure is like. I want to know if the studs are 16 inches on center. Have you ever done any work? Find out in your house your studs aren't 16 inches on center? Or the roof uh, joists are, are not 16 inches on center. Instead, they're 20. Have you ever done that? It throws you for a loop, doesn't it? It changes your plans. You can't hang something heavy on the wall when you find out, hey, there's just no stud there. Now, I know that's a silly illustration to some degree. And I realize that you may not be able to even apply that illustration here. But there's, you, you got to know something about the structure of your house in order for you to manage well any improvements or any repairs or anything that you do on the inside. And it's good for us to know the structure of the book of Revelation. And I prefer the structure that God has given to us. So I ask myself the question, what am I going to do to find out the structure? Well, number one, I'm going to read the book of Revelation through once, twice, three times, maybe four times, maybe more in order to discover what the structure is. I can't come up with a structure just by reading chapter 1. i got to read chapter 2 and all the way through to chapter 22 in order to come up with the structure. And I'm reading it through, paying attention to what? Well... Always pay attention to repeated material. Notice how John is notice how God is leading John throughout the book. One of the very first things that almost every Bible student finds out when they begin to read the book of Revelation through is that there are four visions in the book of Revelation. And they all begin with a passage of scripture that determines or, or that outlines the location and some of the occasion that God gives regarding the location of the Apostle John. For instance, in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, the Bible says, I, John, both your brother and companion in the, tribula in, in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was where? I was on the island of Patmos for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. He had been banished to the island because he was sharing the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. There's where the first vision begins. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. The Lord was trans leading me into a situation to a place where he could share vision number one. And vision number one gives to us information about seven churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. Now, John is off the coast of Asia Minor. He's on the island of Patmos. I bet he got up and he would look out and he would look across the sea. It would look a little, he was off land by a few miles. And he would look to the coastline of Asia Minor and he would think about these churches that God has given him because they're on a common road. There in, there's hundreds of churches, but these seven churches were picked out, no doubt, as an example to us. And so you've already read through the seven churches in your daily Bible reading, I believe it is. And so... Um, um, that constitutes the first vision. Now, a lot of people will say these seven churches are good for all time. 
They're good for us because we can see the characteristics of, of, of the church today with these seven churches we find in the book of Revelation. And I say, you're absolutely right. It's a great passage of Scripture to help the church understand its weaknesses and its challenges. The church is not perfect. The church is not perfect. And some people like to say, well, you know, maybe, maybe these seven churches begin with uh, the first church in, in one age, and then the next age is the next church, and the next church, and the next church, until we get to the Laodicean church. We like to extend that. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that? I'm assume, assuming a lot when I say that. And a lot of people will do that. I don't have any problem with that if you want to do that because it just seems like it fits. It seems like it works. But in every age, you have the condition of seven different types of churches in this world in which we live. That ends vision number one. Vision number two begins in chapter four, verses one and following. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking to me saying, Come up here, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. And then what does he say in verse 2? That kind of is a repeat of what he said in the first vision. He says, immediately I was what? In the spirit and behold, a throne set in heaven and one sat on the throne. And you have exciting throne scene there in heaven. Boy, if you want to get an idea of what it must be like in heaven at the present time, read this. Now he's couched it in some symbolism there. And uh, but but the ideas behind that, the worship and the and the majesty is is incredible. Now, a lot of people take chapter four, verse one and following say this is the second vision. This is the future. I mean, he clearly outlines this is the future. I've been called to heaven and this must refer to the rapture of the church. This is the part where we have the rapture of the church if you're pre-trib rapture. I am, but doesn't mean you are. If you aren't, you're going to see the rapture in two other spots in the book of Revelation before it's all said and done. But that's okay. That's okay. God is guiding His people. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't abandon anybody who knows Him and loves Him, and He protects and He guides through the book of Revelation regardless of where you think the rapture is going to occur, either here or eventually at the second coming of Christ. It doesn't matter. Will times be tough? Sure they will. Sure they will. The first, this second vision is the longest. As you probably can tell, the second vision includes three sets of sevens. The seven churches in the first vision, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls of God's judgment are in the book of Revelation, the second vision. And that vision begins in chapter 4 and goes all the way through Revelation chapter 4 to chapter 17. Incidentally, we know that our minds drift from time to time. And we lose our focus and we lose our attention you may have drifted already two or three times. We know, we know to look for it every seven minutes. Hopefully everybody doesn't do it at the same time. And this is the most important thing. But I'll tell you what. In this second vision of these three sets of seven, you have a repeat of four things 
They're incidental to some degree, but boy, they get my attention. In chapter 4, verse 15, I just want to bring these to your attention because they really, they really do get your attention, and you need to look at the, you need to look at the events surrounding uh, these, uh, uh, these things. So not verse 15, verse 5. So in chapter 4, verse 5, it says, And from the throne preceded what? Lightnings, thunderings, and voices. That gets my attention. Because God is not just whispering something to us. And then move over to chapter 8, verse 5. Then the angel took the censure, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth, and there were what? Everybody together, noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. And that gets my attention. So I want to say, okay, I'm going to pay particular attention to what's going on around this, this uh, section of God's Word. And then in chapter 11, verse 19, in the same vision, the Bible says, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in His temple. And there were what? Everybody together lightnings, noises, thunderings, and an earthquake, and great hail. And it got my attention. And I pay closer attention to what I'm reading and seeing there. And then finally, in chapter 16, verse 18, and finally, in chapter 16, verse 18, the Bible says, and there were what? Everybody together, noises, and thunderings, and lightnings, and a great earthquake. Such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. And all of those references, all of those references culminate in this last one. There is going to be a cosmic upheaval on this earth that you and I can't possibly imagine one day. Never happened like this before. We'll all say, man, we've never seen anything like this before. If you're here, if you're here. Now, that's vision number two. Vision number three. Obviously, we're not going through this, the, the, all of the judgments of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. But here's vision number three. It begins in chapter 17. You're already in chapter 16. Go to chapter 17, verse 1. You see, if I would look at my outline and I would say, all I want to do is prioritize when the great tribulation is coming and when the second coming is coming, when the millennial reign of Christ is going to occur and when the great white throne judgment and, and, and when the new heaven and new earth. If I just wanted to prioritize, that'd be my outline. But it's premature for us to do that. Let's find out the Bible's outline. Okay. Vision number three, verse 17, chapter 17, verse 1. And one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked to me. Now one of the angels comes and talks. Instead of a great voice out of heaven, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the what? In the spirit, vision three, into the wilderness. First of all, he's on the island of Patmos. Second time, he's been translated into heaven. Third, now he's in the wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of the names of blasphemy, having said he seven heads and ten horns. All representing things. Now that's the seventh vision. 
The eighth vision, or the fourth vision, comes over in chapter 21. And I want to compare the two, so let's quickly go over to the fourth vision in chapter 21 and make a quick comparison here, all right? Verse 9 of chapter 21 says, Then one of the seven angels, this is another one of the angels who had the seven bowls, filled with the seven last plagues, came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you what? The bride and the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in what? In the spirit to a great and high mountain. Vision 3, wilderness. Vision 4, great high mountain. Vision 3, he introduces the harlot. In vision 4, he introduces the bride. See the comparisons? It's not just coincidental. In vision three, you have the collapse of Babylon. In vision four, you have the city of God, the new Jerusalem. Now, that's it. Remember, as we start, four visions. Now, I, I went to college, oh boy, 50 years ago. We had a textbook in college by Merrill Tenney, uh, New Testament survey, and he has become one of my favorite authors, by the way, and I like everything he's ever written. And um, when he commented about the book of Revelation in the New Testament survey manual that I had, I want to read a couple of quotes here. The dominant optimism of the book is countered by its glaring picture of evil. I have to shake my head on that and say yes. It contains no hint that the world at large will improve with the passing of time, nor that at the end all men will have turned to God in repentance and faith. It depicts the last civilization as highly prosperous, culturally advanced, and utterly godless. And next week, when you get into the book of Revelation, you read, you're going to come right smack dead into those passages of Scripture that describe great Babylon which would be the last and final civilization on earth. Not only is the last civilization going to be highly prosperous, culturally advanced, and utterly godless, but the last act of organized humanity is an armed rebellion against God and His Christ. I can't think of anything more foolish in all of my thinking In all of the years, I can't think of anything more foolish than... What does is, what is Psalm 2 say about uh, the nations wanting to get out from under the yoke of God? Because that's the way they see it. Getting out from, we don't want God telling us what to do. What does Psalm 2 say? God laughs. Like, are you serious? You really think you can do that? Try all you want. Try all you want. And your last act of organized humanity to, is to be an armed rebellion against me? See how that works. See how that works. Now, to us in this day and age, that seems a little bit more close, I think, than it would have been to the early church in the first century. Because when we look at the mysterious references to images that talk, to making fire come down from heaven, to economic control of large populations, to compulsory obedience, to synthetic religion, this is Merrill Tenney, to the wholesale devastation of the earth, to summoning of all the kings of the earth to do battle, to the leadership of the nations vested in one or two persons, and to the complete collapse of the center of civilization in one hour, 
We look at this and say, that's not outside the reach of the possibility of this modern world, is it? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, Merrill, Merrill Tenney in another book called Interpreting Revelation, in another book gives to us, I just want to give these statements to you and we'll, we'll just, just give them to you and you think about them and apply them. Revelation predicts that in the end of time the world will be under one government. Revelation predicts the development of urban civilization, Babylon, the center of all commercial and social life. Revelation depicts a total totalitarian government of unbelieving scope and power. And it also predicts, predicts a new world order. I love what he says about the new world order. That's the most exciting part of the whole thing. Because he doesn't say the new world order or the one world government of this pagan world. He says there's going to be a new world order when Christ comes back. <laughs> uh, you know what? Let me just, now we'll close with this. We'll close with this because I, I got to give you a little bit of an invitation here. And this is the invitation. Go back to the beginning now. Go back to Revelation chapter 1. Go back to the beginning. I'm just going to make quick five quick references. Maybe we won't even need to do that. Just let you know they're there. But I want you to go back to chapter 1, verse 7. What is the aim of this book? You know, we have the introduction in verses 1 through 3. We have the greeting to the seven churches. And when you get to verse 7, what does it say in verse 7? Behold, he, everybody together, behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Now, I was encouraged when I read that. And I said, well, I'm not going to be in that group of the tribes that are going to mourn when they see him. You're going to either be discouraged when you read this, or you're going to be encouraged, right? One or the other. You've got to have enough information in all of these beholds. See, when you see the word behold, you really need to stop and listen, right? So the second one, we'll at least do the second one, is in chapter 3, verse 11. It was given to the faithful church at Philadelphia, which, by the way, is the only church in all of these that doesn't seem to get reprimanded very much. Verse 11, everybody together. Behold, I am coming quickly. Boy, when that time comes, it's going to happen like that. You're not going to have to wait. You're not going to have to say, oh, how many years are we going to have to deal with this famine, this pandemic? How many years are we going to have to deal with this war? How many years are we going to have to deal with all of the things that are outlined in the book of Revelation? No, when it comes, when, when it starts, it's going to, the second coming is going to happen quickly. We know we have a time frame in here. And the time frame is just a blink of the eye for the most part. But he says in verse 11, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. And then I, I, I want you to note that there are three other ones in there that you probably write these down. If you've got a pencil and you've been writing anything, write the third behold, 16 verse 15, the fourth behold, 19 verse 11, and the fifth behold, 22, 12. My favorite is the actual description of the second coming of Christ, not the rapture, but the second coming of Christ in 1911 where he comes back on a white horse. Well, you can't beat that symbolism, can you? Or that reality. I'm more of a realist than I am an idealist in that regard. 
So you're going to read these beholds and you're going to be encouraged and discouraged. Now you're already still in, in, in Revelation 3, so I have one last passage to give you, and here it is. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Is it another behold? It is. Only of the five ones I just gave you were beholds regarding the second coming of Christ, which got to be the best encouragement you and I can ever, ever, ever hear. But now, this is for you personally. He's writing to a church, but he's writing to you individually as well, as individuals. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him, and he with me. Personalize that. Here's your invitation to avoid all the scary stuff. You want to avoid the scary stuff? Here's your invitation to avoid it. Open the door of your heart. It's a great application to this verse of Scripture. Open the door of your heart, and God promises, Jesus promises, that I will come into Him and dine with Him and He with me. And you can then sit down in the presence of your enemies without a worry and a care in the world. Psalm 23. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the book of Revelation, and I pray, Lord, that we'll understand, we'll experience the blessing because we're willing to read it, we're willing to hear it, and we're willing to keep it. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who's not saved, I ask, Lord, that you'd help us to see our wandering ways and how we're prone to reject you, to leave you, to ignore you, to keep you out of our lives, to forget you even exist. But Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts with this wonderful invitation that you are willing to come in and dwell with us. In Jesus, your name we ask these things. Amen. So here's the invitation. Do you acknowledge you're a sinner? Do you realize that Christ died on the cross for your sin? Do you believe he did it for you? If you do and you respond in faith to Christ, the Bible says you're saved by your faith.